Myrtle Beach is the beach. 60 miles of bright sand, water, and a wealth of wonderful music playing day and night. You can step into a simple beach bar and discover a surprising level of exciting musical talent. A place to kick back and groove to the enticing soundtrack of the most unexpected vacations around. With nothing but good vibes floating through the warm ocean air. Plan your own music-filled trip to America's Jukebox at visitmyrtlebeach.com. Welcome to Podcast One. We hope you'll support our sponsors who bring you these podcasts absolutely free and with limited interruptions. And of course, we appreciate you listening to this show, which will get started in just a second. Since 1983, Eddie Trunk has been the voice for fans of rock, hard rock, and heavy metal. A best-selling author, host of TV's That Metal Show, and seven national radio shows, including Trunk Nation, daily on Sirius XM. Interesting. Eddie offers the world his news-making interviews, passionate analysis, honest commentary, and who knows what else. So welcome to the Eddie Trunk Podcast. And it's time for another episode of the Eddie Trunk Podcast, which is new every Thursday via podcast1.com and iTunes. Thank you for listening, downloading, and streaming as we settle in for another week and a great interview I think you are really going to enjoy with a total icon if you are a rock fan. One of the pioneering rock bands of all time, Rock and Roll Hall of Famers, long overdue, by the way. But a band that I just spent a bunch of time with on tour in Mexico, I'm talking about Deep Purple, and for our podcast this week, my exclusive interview with the band's lead singer, Ian Gillen. And one of the things that I was much looking forward to doing while I had this opportunity to tour with Deep Purple throughout Mexico was to talk to Ian Gillen and Ian Pace extensively Ian Pace, especially because he is the only guy that has been a part of Deep Purple for all of the band's 50 years of existence. And I did do that interview, and I will bring that to you on a future podcast where we go through everything from JoLynn Turner to Glenn Hughes to David Coverdale to Tommy Bolin to the pre-Ian Gillen version of Deep Purple. Uh, Ian Pace has seen it all. And we'll get that interview up for you in the next couple of weeks. But this week, I wanted to get Ian Gillen on. We uh, conducted this interview. I forget what city we were in Mexico. And it's a good 45 minutes or so conversation with him. Uh, just a, a wonderful man. I, I, I've, uh, I just had such an amazing experience. The guy is 74 years old and still sings really, really well. For his age, there are some things vocally he's just not going to do at this point in his career, which is understandable. Not going to be singing Child in Time anytime soon, but 
uh, just a, you know, we had a wonderful dinner. He was nice enough to invite me to dinner. We spent four hours having a dinner one night in Mexico, and I was just like a sponge hearing everything from the guy. And, you know, really inspirational that he's still that good at 74 and can get out there and perform and sing like he does. And there's a lot of, um, you know, differing opinions depending upon you who you ask in the Deep Purple camp if they are done or not. And they are calling the tour the long goodbye, and they really just don't know. You know, they know the end is near, but they also know that they are up there in years. Some of them do have various health ailments that they're dealing with, including Ian Gillen. So they know, you know, they love doing it. They know the band still sounds good, but they do want to get out before the band doesn't sound good anymore. And they are very cognizant of that. So they're kind of taking it tour by tour, week by week, show by show. And I had a tremendous time touring Mexico with them. Unfortunately, four of the shows on the tour were canceled, the first two and the last two. So the good news was I got home earlier than expected and got to have Thanksgiving at home. And I hope everybody did have a good Thanksgiving last Thursday in the U.S., But the experience of traveling with them, flying with them on their charter plane, staying in wonderful hotels and introducing Deep Purple was amazing. One of the things that I, you know, quick story here. The first couple shows of the tour, I didn't do anything on stage before Purple because I had heard from their team that they never let anybody introduce them. Fair enough. I get it. So I didn't do that met a ton of great Mexican fans and did what I did. And that was that. And then as time went on and we were having dinners and we were hanging out with all the guys in purple, I, I brought up to them the fact is like, you know, I, they mentioned something to me because I was introducing the opening band in flames. I said, I'd love to introduce you guys, but I know you have a policy, you know, nobody on the stage. And they said, Oh no, 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 not for you. We would let you do it. And I was like, really? Well, let's do that. And we talked about it, and, you know, basically what had happened was they had had, like a lot of bands, some instances where, you know, people that are total tools go out on stage before the band plays and say stupid things or act like idiots or, you know, just start, you know, just just don't know how to handle themselves bringing on a band. And it just turned them off, so... Ian Gillen told me that it, it's, it had been like 40 years since they let anybody introduce them and go on stage before they played. But they said to me, oh, no, you're different. We would love for you to do it. And I was like, wow, I'm honored. So I said, so what do we want to do? How do you want to do this? So I proposed the idea, and I'd done this a few times before with UFO and some other bands, where I literally introduce each band member as they come out by name. And then say, please welcome Deep Purple. So Deep Purple actually scrapped their intro tape and had me walk out on stage, say hello to the crowd, introduce each of the five members. As I did, they walked out and started noodling on their instruments. And as I said, ladies and gentlemen, Deep Purple, they kicked right into Highway Star. You you don't know how cool it is to be on a stage with Deep Purple literally standing behind you as they begin to play Highway Star. I mean, just incredible. And the guys were super cool, and then they loved it. They were like, you know, oh, mate, the introduction's brilliant. I love the way that works. Do it again. So I did it like three, four times, and the tour got cut a little bit short for reasons still somewhat unknown. And, uh, you know, 
There it is. I told him I'll happy, happily go on tour with you if you continue, though, <laughs> just to do the intro. Great guys. Great experience. I had lunch with Roger Glover. I had dinner with Ian Pace. Spent time with Steve Morse, Don Airy, Ian Pace. It's just amazing. Amazing. So, and thank you to all the great fans I met in Mexico. So many fans. So excited I was there. Really, really very cool. And to Deep Purple in their camp. And a shout out to In Flames as well. The opening act had a lot of fun with those guys. So, the interview for you this week is with Ian Gillen. This interview made a lot of news because I also talked to Ian about his time in Black Sabbath, which got picked up by some of the news outlets. And uh, we did this, I forget what the city was. It may have been in San Luis Potosi, the name of the city in Mexico we were in. We were in a uh, we we're in the hotel in the business center, which we closed down. And uh, Ian Gillen came in and gave me a good 45 minutes or so, which you're going to hear right now on the Eddie Trunk Podcast. And as always, all the interviews you hear are courtesy of my daily radio show, on Sirius XM Channel 106, on the channel volume, which is heard live Monday through Friday, 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time, and replays every night 9 to 11 p.m. Eastern Time, and is also always available on demand on the Sirius XM app. So all the interviews you hear originated and aired there live, and I cherry-pick one each week to bring you here on the podcast so you get a little sense of the things that I'm doing over there on volume on a daily basis. Also, if you're listening to this on post day Thursday, speaking of Sirius XM, you know, once a month I'm going to L.A. and doing my show from the rainbow in L.A. and doing a special live broadcast from the patio there. And that will happen tonight. So if you're in Southern California, come by the rainbow, 6 to 8 p.m. Pacific time. Don't need a ticket. Totally free. No guest list. Just show up. And I'll be there doing the radio show live again, 6 to 8 p.m. Pacific time tonight. If you're not in Southern California, you can listen to all the action live on Sirius XM Channel 106 on volume. As usual, at Eddie Trunk, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, eddietrunk.com is the website with all my appearances on the homepage. Coming up December 8th, I'm back in Tulsa at the IDL Ballroom for L.A. Guns and Junkyard. And I also have some other stuff. It'll all be posted on the website as it's confirmed and comes in as we start to wind down the year for 2018. Follow on Twitter for sure, where I am most active for up to the second news info and updates at Eddie Trunk. Also, a quick note, if you're looking to order signed copies of my books for the holidays, which people often do, hit the books tab for order info on eddietrunk.com. But please note... I only have copies of Volume 2 to sell currently. Orders for Volume 1 will not be processed. I have no more copies of that. I am unable to get more copies of it at the moment. So only Volume 2, if you're interested in ordering a personalized signed book, are now available. Just go to the Books tab. And also, if you're looking for gifts, check out the merch store on eddytrunk.com. Trunk Nation, Eddie Trunk shirts, hats, and a lot more. So let's uh let's get into it. Let's talk to Ian Gillen, one of the legends of rock. He is on this week with us right after this on the Eddie Trunk Podcast. The Eddie Trunk Podcast. Fairworks Relief. 
I've been telling you about it. I got it sitting right on my counter in my bathroom. If you or a loved one get leg or foot cramps, you know how painful they can be. I had one that woke me up out of a sound sleep, and it is brutal. It can interrupt your daily life and really, really make you uncomfortable. Check it out. TheraWorks Relief, a non-greasy foam that's proven to relieve muscle cramps fast, and it will reduce muscle soreness. And with daily use, TheraWorks Relief can even prevent muscle cramps before they start, so you can get a full night's sleep and do all the activities you love without worry. TheraWorks Relief, it only takes minutes to apply. It absorbs quickly, and it truly works. People love the results. So check it out. You've probably seen Dr. Drew Pinsky on TV talking about TheraWorks Relief, and many of my colleagues on radio are also talking about it. TheraWorks Relief. Now the holiday seasons, they're right around the corner, so if you know someone who suffers with muscle cramps or muscle soreness, how can you possibly get them a better gift than some relief from pain? TheraWorks Relief, it is the choice for preventing and relieving muscle cramps. Make it yours. Get TheraWorks Relief today in the pain relief aisle at Walmart, CVS, Rite Aid, and Walgreens, or by talking to your pharmacist. Learn more at TheraWorksRelief.com. Podcast One is your one-stop shop for everything TV and pop culture. A very candid, not even supposed to be on the record conversation. Check out any of the Collider Network podcasts like TV Talk, Movie Talk, Collider Live, and more. And for you reality TV fans, Rob Sister Nino's got you covered with Rob has a podcast. This is a podcast There's no about nothing. <laughs> yeah. You literally have a podcast about nothing. Check out the Collider Network and Rob has a podcast every week on Podcast One or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Hey, be sure to check out Zane's World on Podcast One. World traveler, author, and alcohol aficionado Zane Lamprey is well-learned in the art of having a good time as his review as he uh, reviews the best attractions and destinations on the globe and shares the craziest stories behind his travels. Check out Zane's World every Tuesday on Podcast One or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. This is the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Eddie Trunk back with you, and it's time for this week's interview, and it is with, as I mentioned, Ian Gillen of Deep Purple, who has fronted the band through all of their classic best-known period of all the big records and has in recent years as well, including some great recent albums that they made as well. So let's uh, let the man go at it. And, uh, man, we just, just, just was such a great honor and such a great conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. I enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed doing it. So from Mexico, from my volume show on Sirius XM, this is Ian Gillen. Thank you for coming. I knew you came a long distance for this. Yeah, I did. I came all the way downstairs from my room. <laughs> <laughs> a push of the button on the elevator. They should all be that easy, right? Via the cafe where I picked up a cappuccino, yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, I was talking about it on the air. Thank you for – we had an amazing dinner the other day. I really appreciate you having me for that. And, that was uh, fun. It was fun. You taught me the proper way to drink the Sampuca and the cappuccino, although I, I forgot the order. Yeah, I, I forget too. But you said your dad well, taught you my that. My dad right? taught me all about chasers with beer and whiskey, but um, after a few, I forgot what was chasing what. <laughs> <laughs> but he was from Scotland, and there's a line in a song I wrote. My daddy was from Scotland, and I couldn't understand a single word he said to me until I was a man. It was, it was uh, the Glaswegian accent is very harsh. Oh, uh, yeah. Everything sounds like a threat. I bet. I bet. <laughs> That's interesting, like a threat. Um, tell me how you're feeling now about this, which is your final go through. You know, the tour is called The Long Goodbye. You're yeah. still 
still infinite is still obviously the, the new record you're still supporting as well but how how are you feeling about things as to where the band's at right now i've seen two shows now on this tour i think that i was talking earlier i mean the band still sounds so powerful you still sound so great singing how are you feeling about things and how things are going with all this as far as a long goodbye well deep inside it's a it's it's quite a um philosophical psychological thing to deal with when you come to a point I mean, a couple of years ago when Ian Pace had his stroke, uh, we were all feeling a bit under the weather and feeling our age a bit and recognized the fact that the end was not that far away. Um, and so we decided to call it the long goodbye tour, long being the word. And uh, now we're all feeling great. <laughs> so I imagine we'll, um, we'll try and keep going for a little longer, so long as the result is great and we feel powerful and uh, delivering the goods. Um, but it's in the back of your mind, um, this, um, the end. I, I think it must be for everyone when you come up to retirement or the end of a long career. Um, you, you just think it, it's a kind of um, shadow in the future because you don't quite know what's going to happen when you do quit. But um, we'll handle that when we get there. In the meantime, um, everyone's on top of their game and enjoying it. So um, there's been talk of another album, and uh, so... That would be lovely, I think, uh, if we're in uh, if we're in the right mood and the right shape to do it. Well, we were just talking off the air about the technology of me being able to do a live broadcast to mm. American Canada here in Mexico with you today, and that technology also permeates with what you do in music. You were saying you can actually write on the road and or yeah. times carry mobile studios, and and that's been part of the creative process. I can do a lot of that, and in fact, I do. I've got um, a friend of mine, Steve Morris, not Morse, Steve Morris from Liverpool. I do a lot of writing with, and he comes down to my place in Portugal, and we just set up. He just pulls a laptop out, and we stick a microphone into a little box, and off we go. And yeah. But that's for writing. With Deep Purple, we need a few things. First of all, we need Bob Ezrin. <laughs> and uh, as we've got Ian Pace, um, we need a big room right. because his drums need to sound big, yeah. um, and they need to be recorded live. Um, uh, with all the ambient sound as well as the close miking. So it's a combination. When digital recording first came in, where everyone switched over to it without really knowing how to do it. When I first heard Machine Head uh, on a CD, 1982, I nearly cried. It was so awful. It sounded so flat and terrible. Years later, when they got to grips with it and they learned how to remaster and learned how to use digital recording, it was very similar. The difference between the filmic quality um, on a video and, and video, which was always very cold in the early days, right. visually cold, but it didn't have those warm textures. And uh, so it's the same with recording. And then most people moved into a situation where you're using two-inch tape, analog, 24-track to record, and then switching to digital for mixing. Um, so now they've pretty much got him nailed. They're still using quarter-inch, uh, two-inch tape for recording because it's got that... Um, you can't match the sound. You just can't. And uh, so uh, I guess... Um, well, Bob can. <laughs> the people I know can't. <laughs> so um, it, it's developing. It's evolving. It makes it a lot easier now. But you still need the room. You still need the organic side of things. Yeah, I mean, that's so important. And, and you know, you mentioned Bob Ezrin, who... I had on this show not too long ago who's a, a legendary producer and uh, j just such a fascinating guy to talk to. You first started working with him 
on the previous record, right? On What If. That was the first record you did with him? What If. This is a great title for an album. It was Now What, actually. Now What. what? I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's, that's all confused. right. Now, now What. That was yeah. the first time, right? That's when we first saw Darkness on the Horizon. We were going, Now What? <laughs> but, yeah. but talk about what he brought to the band, because for all the people that love mm. what Ezrin does, there are also that some that, that say he's a bit of a... Well, I mean, I think that's why people want him, because he's a bit of a taskmaster, and he can be a bit hard on you and things like that. How, how do you find working with them uh, what has he brought to deep purple okay well I, I can't think of any negatives with bob um number one we all respect him because he's been around the block so many times mm -hmm. he's a consummate musician himself um he's produced everything from classical music to hard rock i think he has a bocelli record right now that he produced yes which is unbelievable like, it's incredible s scope of what he does everything that comes out is quality and everything that comes out is considered but for us in particular what he gave us was something I remember at the first meeting we had in Toronto when he came to see a show before we worked with him. He said, what I'd like to do is, he said, I saw the show last night. He said, I'd like to um, uh, capture that um, on the record because that's what you used to do. You used to just go in and jam and make songs out of the jam. And it was so right because the music always came first before the song, if you know what I mean, before the song and the lyrics and the tune and everything else. It was just the excitement, exciting interchange between the guys, the rhythm section and the soloists, um, who each slotted back into the rhythm section when they weren't soloing. So he let us loose in the studio with freedom. We don't want three-minute songs. We don't want five-minute songs. You can play for ten minutes if you want. On the other hand, he would say, enough, let's get rid of that. So as soon as he heard us going up a blind alley, um, he put a stop to it. Um, and everyone said, cool, that's great. Because Deep Purple's never had a leader in the band, and nobody ever. And that's a big point, that yeah. you guys as a band said, cool. that's cool, that's great. That's maybe where the pushback with other bands, you were willing to take that. Absolutely. Uh, there's no point, you know, having a dog and barking yourself. It doesn't make <laughs> any sense. So we never had a, a leader in the band, so we would spend days pursuing um, ideas that were never going to get anywhere sometimes, just because um, it seemed the right thing to do. Bob had um, a good insight and foresight, and he was able to put a stop to all the time wasting. So we were able to make records in 10 days um, just by going in and um, doing what we do. We, we arrive at noon and we finish at 6. <laughs> we take a break for tea at 3 o'clock, and uh, whatever's good, we record it. And then uh, Roger and I... Do some work on the on the um, the tune side of things and the lyrical side of things. But once the uh, music is nailed, we work on top of that. You know what's incredible to me is a band like Deep Purple with the catalog that you have. Whether you know going back to the beginning, as you mentioned, Machine Head alone. I mean, where, wherever you want to go in, in the band's history, you easily could go out and play these shows without making new music or making a new album. But it's important to continue to be creative and continue to write, even at this point in your career as an artist, I assume. Yes. I think it's important because that's the difference between being cabaret and contemporary. Nostalgia versus... Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, you, you've got to have input. There are four elements to... Uh, we talked about this before. That there are four elements to a Deep Purple show. Uh, one is the well-known material from the past, and that'll be anything from Highway Star to Perfect Strangers, etc., um, or anything from Hush to uh, Perfect Strangers and stuff like that. Then there's um, the more obscure material, 
that we slip in that the fans know, like um, Bloodsucker and Lazy and things like that, that were never got played on the radio, but um, the, the real Deep Purple fans like to hear them. Then there's new material, which we try and balance with the old stuff, and it has been difficult at times because it's not compatible, and that's why it slips in and out of the show quite quickly. But now, with Now What and with Infinite, the songs are much more compatible with the earlier material because of the way in which they were developed in the studio, the freedom. And, of course, the other element of new songs is that, you know, they were all new songs once, so we have to do new songs in order for them to become old songs. So uh, you've got to give them a chance. And the fourth element is the improvisations, which throws a, a, a challenge. Every I get butterflies in my stomach every lunchtime on show day. Um, it's not stage fright, but I do get nervous excitement because I don't quite know what's going to happen um, on stage that night. There's always something different that keeps you on your toes and that keeps the show fresh. And the fifth element, of course, is the the, the audience and the venue and the you know that changes every night. So uh, does it amaze you the audience that this band like here in Mexico? These crowds are seem so into it, and I've gone out there in that crowd and met some fans and. It's it's very diverse. The ages are wide range of people that have been touched by your music. Um, the 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 reaction and and you do it does of course people want to hear Highway Star and 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 Smoke on the Water and all that, but it just seems like they are open to going on that journey that you guys bring, whether it be an extended jam or whether it be a new song. They seem a lot very receptive to it, at least here on this tour. I think they are generally around the world. Uh, we noticed about 20 years ago that there was a huge influx of young people coming to the shows and the old ones were spreading to the outside of the arenas and the <laughs> seats and the young ones were filling up the space in the front, which, gave, you know, because they bring energy. They bring a lot of energy, uh, young fans. And so I like that blend um, and it's nice to um, it's nice to see them all working. There's no embarrassment about um, age groups with Deep Purple audiences, I don't think. Um, and it's not like other um, sort of genres where you have to wear the right hat or have the right haircut. You know, it's um, it's it's not like that at all. And I think they they like us for our honesty. Uh, the music's honesty. It's right on the edge. Um, it's it's it, it's quite challenging, and it's enjoyable to listen to. I think you know because a lot of melody and texture and um, exciting rhythms. The the band is full of energy i mean it's a very energetic show it's so powerful it, it goes from beginning to you know and uh i think the fans you know if they want to jump up and down they can do that how do you feel about yourself at this point one of the things i was talking to roger the other day um and i and, and steve as well and i said man ian vocally sounding great you're you're going for some of that high stuff even in some of these songs and and i think roger or steve made a comment to me something to the fact of like i I think he has settled into a sort of a new voice, if you will. Um, Talk a little bit about that. I mean, what you did, I don't expect you anytime soon to be singing Child in Time again. But but, I mean, what what you're doing is pretty remarkable. You sound great. I mean, what what sort of process do you go through these days to do that? Well, we don't expect Pavarotti to be doing nine high seas in (laughs) Our Mes Amis from uh, La Fille du Regiment. At the, at the Met anymore um, because he's dead. But even in his later years, <laughs> he wasn't able to do that. Uh, Child in Time for me was more like an Olympic event than a song. It was, uh, <laughs> it was quite, uh, quite a challenge. When was the last time you sang it? I, I think in my late 30s. Okay. Um, uh, it, it was 
I, I, I wound it down, but it was becoming um, difficult. And I didn't want it to sound difficult. I, I, you know, it's not our job to air our problems to the public. We've got to make things seem effortless. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the way it should be. So, um, but every cloud comes with a silver lining. And so when I was in my late 40s, early 50s, I found another voice. I found the voice I'd always been searching for, which was a high mid-range. One of my heroes as a kid was a singer called Cliff Bennett, who was a West London singer, had a couple of big hits in the early days, and um, um, I used to go and watch him. And the power he had in a high mid-range just by singing naturally was um, very impressive. I could never get that tone. I could reach it, but it it never sounded convincing to me. Um, And then... All of a sudden, my voice matured a bit, and I got a change of tone, and it sounded good. So you work within the parameters that you're you're comfortable with, mm. and um, so yes, I have found a new voice. I think up to a point, it's not that different. It's just changed shape slightly. Yeah, no, it's 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 remarkable, and it works. And it's you know we we touched on earlier about knowing when to say when. I have a thing that I say all the time, like the bands that I love, I'd rather see them. And still sounding great than going to see them say, Jesus, why are they still doing it? Like they just can't do it anymore. And I walked away from at least these first two shows that I've seen with you guys saying they can still do it just fine. I mean, they really can. It's 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 incredible after all these years that, that that's the case. So you, you you feel like you could have another couple years here with this or? Well, I'm, I'm hoping so. Um at the moment, you never. It, it, yeah, the answer to that is yes. Um, but you never know what's around the corner. Yeah. Um, so we're philosophical about that, um, and we'll take it as it comes. Do these um, shows have different meaning to you now? Not to say that the others didn't, but knowing that these, no matter what, it's kind of the final lap that that the, I, these these you feel a little differently after you do them. Eddie, I got to let you into a secret. Really, this is. It probably sounds very selfish, and whatever we were talking about the fans earlier. But you know what? Deep Purple never did anything except for itself. And you have to satisfy yourself, first of mm. all. And if we come off... Um, I've had this many, 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 many times over the years when the band's all grumpy in the dressing room and the manager comes in and says, Oh, great show, man. You know, the crowd went crazy and everything else. And we're all going, mm. Yeah, because we know it wasn't right. We know somebody screwed up. Somebody um, wasn't on it tonight if you're sick we can cover but if you're not um you need to kick up the backside and so the the we set the standards high for ourselves and um it, it's working at the moment so there's a very happy atmosphere in the dressing room um so the answer to your question is it's it's if we're happy we'll carry on but our standards are high so um we've always been stage performers the reason we're doing this at the moment and keeping I don't know if you've seen the schedule for the last six months, but it's crazy. You're just um, in Japan. You just toured with Priest in America. Russia, yeah. Europe. I mean, Scandinavia. I mean, it's it's just been insane the last six months. And um, so that keeps you on your toes. It, what do they say? Use it or lose it. You know, right. and I think we do use it a lot. Back with more with Ian Gillen coming up on this week's Eddie Trunk Podcast. This, this is the Eddie Trunk Podcast.
Hey, let me tell you guys about Vivid Seats. It is an online event ticket marketplace, and it's dedicated to providing fans of live entertainment with the experience that lasts a lifetime. Vivid Seats, the listeners, uh, my listeners, you can watch your favorite team or favorite artist perform in person. Vivid Seats helps fans find their seats to any of their favorite live events, including sports, concerts, theater, and more. And Vivid Seats offers great prices and an easy purchasing experience. And check this out. Use the Eddie Trunk Podcast. You guys, the listeners, you can receive 10% off your first purchase with Vivid Seats. Here's all you do. Go to the App Store or Google Play. You download the Vivid Seats app. First-time new customers, you can enter the promo code Eddie, E-D-D-I-E, and you'll get 10% off your order. All Vivid Seats confirm orders they're backed by 100% guaranteed. So they're all confirmed. They're all guaranteed once they are. All you got to do, grab the app, put my name in, my first name, Eddie, E-D-D-I-E, 10% off. That could be a lot of money. So check it all out. We all love a night out. You all want to see your favorite bands, your favorite sporting event, whatever the case may be. Use Vivid Seats. Grab the app. First-time customers, promo code Eddie, E-D-D-I-E, Enter it 10% off your first Vivid Seats orders. Every purchase, backed by 100% buyer guarantee, from the biggest concerts and games to the hottest theater and more, Vivid Seats. Grab the app, enter Eddie, 10% off your first order. Enjoy, folks. Vivid Seats. Check it out. Hey, guys, it's Jack Vanek from The Lady Gang, and I'm sitting here with true crime TV producer and my best friend, Alexis Linkletter, and we are so excited that we are finally launching our true crime podcast called The First Degree right here on Podcast One. And each week, we are going to bring you the craziest true crime stories and talk to the people who are one degree away from each of these crazy events. And we've dragged crime journalist Billy Jensen along for the ride, and he can't get rid of us. Join us on The First Degree every Wednesday on PodcastOne.com and the PC One app. Also remember to rate and review. Sixty seconds. That is exactly how long this commercial lasts. Well, not really, give or take a few seconds. But you know what else you can do in about a minute? You can get an offer for your car with True Car. That's right. And the amount of time it takes to floss your teeth, pet your dog, do a few sit-ups, or just listen to my voice, you can get a True Cash offer. Best of all, you can do it from your smartphone or home. Just go to True Car and simply enter your license plate number and watch how your car's details pop up. Answer a few questions and you'll get an accurate True Cash offer from a local True Car certified dealer. It's that easy. After that, you can bring your car in. And they'll check it out with you together. You can ask questions and get the answers you need so there's no surprises. Then simply leave with your check or trade in your car for a new ride. So when you are ready to experience a better way to sell or trade in your car, check out True Car today. This This is the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Let's get back to it with more with Ian Gillen on this week's Eddie Trunk Podcast. Steve Morse is going to be here in a bit. Can you believe you've had Steve 25 years, Ian? Yeah, I can. (laughs) (laughs) It's great. It's been a great journey. Uh, When he came on board, he uh, reignited the band. We were pretty low ebb. I mean, Joe Satriani 
saved us from drowning completely and got us out of the hole. But uh, it was Steve was there to help us rebuild with the Perpendicular album. And uh, from there on, we uh, we embarked on a completely different regime, a different way of working, and everything else. It was, he's been great. Yeah, and, uh, and and yeah, he just he just uh, does such such a brilliant job in the band. I think when when he first came into the band, it it, it, it was probably rough for him, right? I mean, yeah. coming in and you know anybody coming in after Blackmore would have had been a tough thing. But well, I, it seems like the audience has really you know embraced what the, what he brings now. Let's remember a couple of things. Deep Purple was sinking with Richie. It was going. We were playing to quarter houses in Europe, which is our, you know one of our strongest territories in Germany smaller venues and they weren't even full so had we continued that way had Richie not walked out um, it, we would have finished that would have been the end of it so um, and the other thing was uh, Steve's answer to that question when um, he, we did our first press conferences and when somebody asked him he said how's it going to feel to fill Richie Blackmore's shoes and he said, as far as I know, Richie took his shoes with him when he left the band. So. <laughs> Steve just walked in, so only say nice things about him. He can hear us right now. Oh, shit, we have to be careful what we say now. No, nothing but love for Steve Morris, of course, and, uh, and what he's brought to this. I want to ask you about a couple other things, though, um, b- before I, I, I let you uh, get on with your day. You, uh, you had a band after you initially left Deep Purple that was just called Gillen with, Ber- with uh, Ber- Bernie Torme and all. Yeah. Did it... Did it um, that band, unfortunately, never really took root in America, did it? You, you no. could never really get that over there. Did that, did that bother you at that point? That really never took root anywhere, uh, to be <laughs> honest. That was, um, the, uh, it was a kind of nebulous situation. It started off with a kind of, I don't know how to describe it, a kind of jazz rock formation. I just got together some musicians that I truly respected. And you can never cater for human chemistry. Because you don't know what's going. You feed it. That's why everyone failed when their attempts to make supergroups in the seventies. You know, you you feed in uh, all these different elements, and what comes out the other end is entirely due to the way they they blend. Um, so it was good music, but it wasn't very commercial. And um, so I did two albums with the first incarnation, and then uh, a few more with Gillen and the Ian Gillen band. And it was never quite settled. It did very well. Um, but it was a journey. It was a, an onward journey and uh, very invigorating for me um, to get back into the business. I had a, a complete break for a couple of years after Purple. It was impossible to find anything that would fit Purple. And then uh, ended up with a fantastic record label, Virgin, in London. In those days, it was just amazing. And um, we ended up in, doing a tour in, um, in the UK with the Gillen Band, and I went for an Indian meal with a, a, one of my heroes, Rodney Marsh, who was the uh, a football player for Queen's Park Rangers and England. He was an international player. We went for a meal after the show, and he said, oh, man, he said, that was great, fantastic show. He said, it's a great band. And then a pause. He said, but it's not as good as Deep Purple, is it? <laughs> <laughs> Rodney was one of those guys that spoke his mind, and we, we'd had a couple of drinks, so uh, in Venus Veritas, as they say. And um, so he was right, and the band was coming to its organic end anyway. So I picked up the phone to John Lord the next morning and uh, said, what do you think? And he was all for it. Um, and at that time, I, my band came to a natural end, and the word went around, and we thought, mm, yeah, maybe it's worth it. Let's check it out. And everyone had different obligations. Richie was um, up to here with Rainbow at the time, and uh, 
So uh, we gave it a year, and then the seeds were sown the day after that night, that um, show in the Hammersmith Odeon. And, uh, and that led to Perfect Strangers? That led to Perfect Strangers after, um, after a, a year with Black Sabbath, yeah. Well, that, and I don't want to gloss over that because, um, <laughs> w- you know, when you, when you came in to Sirius XM and, and, and you, Roger, and Ian came in and we did the launch for, for the Infinite Record and we spoke, as, as you and I were walking out of the building down the elevator, I don't know if you recall, but I'd gotten in your ear about something about Born Again and we, we were, you and I stood in the lobby and chatted for a bit while everyone was in the car waiting for you. Mm. Um, but that album, you know, on the air, I'd like to talk about it because that album, although at the time was was fairly maligned for various reasons over the 35 years I guess since it's been made has taken on a whole new stature people really like that record some have pointed to it as like the roots of what uh, would become grunge in some ways further down the line what what is your memories and what are your thoughts now in retrospect about your time in Sabbath and making that record I was talking earlier about human chemistry and how you, what you put in one end is not necessarily what comes out the other. And uh, what, how we started was just because we got drunk together one night. I went for a drink with Tony and Giza and um, they said, oh, well, what ended up under the table and uh, I can't remember much of what happened, but I got a call from my manager the next day saying, um, you, don't you think you should call me if you're going to make big decisions like this? I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, apparently, you, I just got a call. You agreed to join Sabbath last night. That's <laughs> oh, All right. So that's how it happened. And uh, <laughs> I was at a kind of loose end um, anyway, having just finished with my own band and Purple not really being um, anything viable at the time. So um, we set a one-year plan, and that was to do um, an album and a tour. Um, nobody knew what was going to happen, so we pitched up, and I... I pitched my tent, literally, at the old manor in Oxfordshire, and we made an album. I didn't see much of them. They were night people, so they slept all day and worked all night. I got up in the morning, cooked my breakfast, went to the studio to hear what they had recorded the night before, and wrote a song over it. And um, <coughs> and that's how the album was made. It was an interesting structure, management-wise, with Don Arden and all the old-style kind of overtones of gangsterism and stuff like that and connections so uh it was interesting and i loved it it was it was a challenge for me it was a bit like i know this sounds weird but it was a bit like doing jesus christ superstar or singing with pavarotti it's just something completely different um two things you've done (laughs) yeah but i mean it was listen tony is such a great um writer you know what to expect with tony there's no there's no multi-directional approach it's just you know, he is the father of everything that came out of Seattle, I believe. You know, mm-hmm. he is just, um, he, he, he's just very direct. And that's how he evolved from early days. So um, um, it was, I found it very easy to sing, uh, write songs with them. And uh, we had a couple of good ones based on, there was always a narrative. My favorite song from that album is Trashed, which is a true story. Which you redid later with Tony on Gillen's Inn when you did that record a number of years ago. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, And um, yeah, that was a true story about a racetrack and too much drink and spinning a car, crashing it and going upside down. And it was a exciting times. And then the tour which was the longest party I've ever been to, I must, <laughs> I must say. 
Well, you told me at dinner the other day a story about the stage set and how that came about with Stonehenge. If, if you could share that. With we had a production company called Light and Sound Design. They were in Birmingham where the band was based. And uh, after a rehearsal one day, we, we had a kind of meeting to go to their office. And as we were walking through these corridor one of the guys said oh, by the way anyone got any idea of concept for a stage set or anything and geezer butler said uh yeah stonehenge <laughs> and the guy said wow that's great he said how do you visualize it and geezer said well life-size of course <laughs> so, <laughs> so we didn't quite go life-size but it was about two-thirds i think of your your average um your average block of stone and uh we could never get it all up on the stage we played some huge arenas and um places and stadiums and uh you couldn't get it. <laughs> stonehenge you know come on <laughs> so there are parts of it there are monoliths that are still lying around in dockland somewhere rats potted around the world as far as i know and it was funny and there are loads of hilarious stories attached to that. it was one long party and uh i think uh a joy i'm still very close with tony and uh we speak and uh well you guys do a a, a really nice uh benefit it's for armenian schools right you did a record not too yeah after the earthquake ago. and uh, 25,000 killed you know it wasn't widely reported because it was just on the cusp of the soviet the end of the soviet union and uh armenia was a re soviet republic at that time not a free country and so we didn't hear much about it and uh, but I w I was there a year after and uh, I saw the devastation and I saw an old lady um just holding up a picture of her family 28 people great grandchildren and she was the only survivor and uh, I spoke to the mayor of Spitak and he said for a year he said there's been no music no no music on the radio no music in the church even the birds have stopped singing and after a devastation like that and a th little thing went off in my head and said, well, maybe when you're ready, we can start the music again and start with the music. And in the neighboring town, Gyumri, uh, the school had been devastated. There were holes in the wall. The snow was coming in. The kids were frozen. The instruments were broken. And uh, we went prior to that. Um, after my first experience, we made a an album called Live Aid Armenia. And um, for that, the president gave us um, an, um, an award, a, a Appreciation Award uh, Medal of Honor and um, uh, when we went to receive that um, on the plane on the way back Tony and I thought let's rebuild that school because now's the time for the music to start again so it was all very symbolic as well as mm -hmm. and it kind of took off and uh, everyone climbed on board and it was wonderful and uh, I was there when the school was opened um, and the president was there and the prime minister was there and the, mm. and the archbishop from New York was there and it was just very emotional time and a friend of ours in Canada who uh, <coughs> has a music store in a in a in a small town donated a truckload of equipment there were pianos and violins and drums and woodwind and brass and guitar picks and strings and everything you could possibly imagine it was just fantastic so uh, a, a very emotional time and uh, it's all up and running now and everyone's happy that's amazing. Two quick things, and I'll let you go. You do you relaunched a band you had prior to Purple? Is that correct? The Javelins. Well, it was my first ever band. It was my amateur days in 1962 and 63, called the Javelins. Yeah, and uh, we used to play songs by Buddy Holly and Chuck Berry and Elvis and uh, and the Coasters and the Everly Brothers and you name it. And uh, so we got together 
in March and uh, recorded an album in two days. <laughs> they practiced for six weeks. None of them, none of them turned pro. They were all. Um, one was a cab driver. One was a printer. One was an architect. And, and you stayed in touch with all of them over the years. Yeah, we had a reunion, um, a sort of fifty-year reunion, a few years ago, and um, uh, yeah, we kind of stayed in touch. That's amazing in and of itself. Because here yeah. it is, this band you had as a kid, and you go on to become, you know, Ian Gillen, Deep Purple, and all that. And you, these guys are driving cabs, and you kept the connection and started it up again. It's a kind of milestone in your life, and it's a significant point where you start to learn a bit more than just being a fan singing Buddy Holly songs. You know, you suddenly think there's something in there, and the joy of performing and learning and watching other professionals around you in, in nearby venues and picking up tricks at the trade and going to Jim Marshall's shop and mixing with the pros and suddenly and watching Cliff Bennett and thinking, I want to be there right in the middle of the stage. I can't get any closer. I'm on the front standing there watching, but I want to be where he is in the middle of the rebel rousers hearing, you know, Chaz Hodges and Roy Young and Mickey Burt and all these players right in my ear. That's where I want to be. And, um, so I treasure those days and I treasure the memories. It was um, a great launch pad, a great springboard for me. Last thing, smoke on the water. Mm. Be honest with me. You're sick of singing it? <laughs> I've got about the best anecdote for that that I could ever tell anybody. I'm sure you've been asked it before, but... <laughs> well, I, I, I never quite knew how to answer that other than truthfully, but boringly, until um, I sang with Pavarotti and... Um, he wanted to be. He wanted to do an album with me, and he wanted to sing "Smoke on the Water." When we, when he called me at home, "Hello, Ian, we're going to sing together. What should we sing? Child in Time?" I'm going. I don't know. Those days ago. How about Ness and Dorma? He went. It went quiet on the phone. He said, "Ness and Dorma, you crazy? You want to sing Ness and Dorma with me? You crazy?" <laughs> so uh, yeah, she said a bit more than that. There were a couple of epithets involved, but um, anyway. Um, when we were rehearsing, um, he, he was a, an amazing man, amazing, full of humanity and great sense of humor. And he wanted to be a pop singer. He wanted, he wanted music on the streets. That's why he did what he did within the world of opera. And he said, Ian, I'm so jealous of you. I've heard you sing Smoke on the Water six times now. Every time is different. He said, sometimes you're driving it, sometimes you're laid back. He said, it's different in the smallest way, but every time. He said, if I did that to any of my famous arias, arias, if I ever moved one smidgen, one iota from the original interpretation, the critics and the fans would crucify me. Wow. My career right. would be over. He said, so you have freedom. I, I, and I, I remember that remark, and I thought, well, that's true. I wish I'd thought of saying that. Um, but it doesn't have quite the weight uh, or the you know, profundity when it's coming from me as it does if I quote Pavarotti. And uh, so I do that all the time when I'm asked that question. It never bores me. Um, it's a great lyric. It's uh, it, it's a narrative. It's a true story. The did you know, did <clears> you know <throat> when you recorded that song, when that came together, the music, the lyric, the the day you recorded it, was there anything in your fiber that said, this is going to become one of the classic rock, the biggest classic rock songs in the history of rock music, essentially. No idea at all. We had no idea about commerciality with Purple. I'm not sure we still do. Um, <laughs> it, 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 uh, it's a bit beyond our reach. That's not how we write our music um, with commerce in mind. But 
Um, I loved singing it. The song was an addition to We Were Short of Time. Martin Birch, our engineer producer, said, guys, we've got one more day in the studio and we're seven minutes short of an album. And uh, so we dug out the tape that we'd made for the sound check on the first day, which was Smoke on the Water. It wasn't called that then. It was called Dan Dan Song or something like that. And so Roger and I wrote a biographical lyric, the story of making Machine Head. We'll come out to Montreux on the Lake Geneva shoreline to make records for the mobile, the Rolling Stones truck thing. Great. And, um, and then the fire, of course, and the Frank Zappa concert. And it was all encapsulated in the lyrics. Um, but the, the, the riff, you know, was just awesome. And uh, no, we didn't think of that. So just thank God we were able to finish the album before we got thrown out by the police because we were making too much noise um, in, late into the night in this hotel where we had to record because the casino had burned down where we were supposed to record. Yeah. And um, so um, it was some time later when a guy called Rush Shaw at Warner Brothers came to see the show, saw how well the, the, that song was going down and went back and did an edit to 3 minutes 15 and got played on the radio for the first time oh i didn't realize there was an edit of it yeah well the album version is seven minutes long yeah but still that's it was never played the album version wasn't no oh that's it's all i know is the album version yeah it was never played i mean not on commercial radio right never played at all uh, until the edit was done and then of course they had a three and three and a half minute song that they could fit in yeah yeah (laughs) that became format um happy you know yeah. So uh, that's how it came about. No, never got bored with it, and we had no idea um, how it was going to turn out or uh, and how well it was going to be received. We knew that the the song went down well on stage, but yeah. not until uh, the rec- thank God for record labels and radio stations. Eh? And it still <laughs> does, man. It, just last night, hearing every Mexican fan out there singing that chorus yeah. back to you, it's unbelievable. <clears throat> it really is unbelievable. <clears throat> so... Uh, Listen, man, uh, Steve is standing. I, I could talk to you for hours, and uh, we've got a, a couple more weeks here together, so feel free to drop by any time. And Good uh, Thanks very I, much I, for being here anyway. We're enjoying having you on the road. I, I can't thank you enough, and uh, I appreciate you dropping by for a few. Enjoy your massage I know you're going to get. and uh, Yeah, these old aching bones. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll see you, uh, I think, tomorrow. We're going to Lyon, yeah. I believe. Yeah. Or, so yeah, we we'll are. see you in Lyon, and thank you so much, Ian Gillen. Okay, buddy. Well, my huge thanks to Ian Gillen of Deep Purple, also to his assistant Sally for making all that happen. We did that on Day Off in Mexico on the band's recent tour, and it was a tremendous honor. Could have spoken to the guy for hours and hours and hours. Thank you guys for listening to the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Again, if you're in L.A. and you're listening to this on Thursday, post-day, the 29th of November, I will be at the Rainbow in Los Angeles tonight doing my radio show on volume, live from the Rainbow, 6 to 8 p.m. Pacific. Come on down, totally free, don't even need a ticket. And if you are not in the L.A. area, be sure to tune in and listen live on Channel 106 on Sirius XM. Major special guest. We've had some great guests and I um, can guarantee you tonight will be no exception. So be sure to tune in and again, tonight the uh, live show is usually 2 to 4 Eastern with the replay 9 to 11 Eastern. On Thursdays, the one time a month we do the show from the Rainbow. We flip that best of show in 2 to 4 Eastern window and the live broadcast tonight over the air is also 9 to 11 p.m. Eastern because we'll be at the Rainbow. 
Then, of course, every day, Monday through Friday, live 2 to 4, replay 9 to 11 p.m. Eastern. At Eddie Trunk on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, eddietrunk.com is the website. You guys have yourselves a great week, and I'll see you next Thursday for another all-new episode. And thanks, of course, as always, to Katie Irizarry. Have a good one, everybody. Podcast One Sports is your home for the Underdog Sports Network. Join Chris Horwadell and friends each week as they cover the biggest stories in sports with shows like Tales from the Association, the Underdog Sports NFL Show, and You're Wrong and Here's Why. You can't rely on draft picks a lot of times with quarterbacks. There's four to five quarterbacks drafted in the first round that are complete busts. Check out all these exciting shows on the Underdog Sports Network every week on Podcast One or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Myrtle Beach is the beach. 60 miles of bright sand, water, and a wealth of wonderful music playing day and night. You can step into a simple beach bar and discover a surprising level of exciting musical talent. A place to kick back and groove to the enticing soundtrack of the most unexpected vacations around. With nothing but good vibes floating through the warm ocean air. Plan your own music field trip to America's Jukebox at visitmyrtlebeach.com.